Hello everyone and welcome to Side Dish. This is an IFT podcast that dishes up perspectives from multiple disciplines relating to the science of food and developing your career in this rapidly changing professional ecosystem. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Today, we're going to be talking about a technology that we might be able to use to reduce the microbiological load on foods. And here's the exciting part. It appears that we could be able to significantly reduce the microbiological load without having any significant adverse impact on the organoleptic quality of the food. The technology that we're going to be discussing today is one of the newer emerging non-thermal technologies, and it's known as cold plasma. Our guest today is Dr. Brendan Namira, Research Leader of the Food Safety and Intervention Technologies Unit for the USDA Agricultural Research Service. Dr. Namira has been studying the use of cold plasma and is an author on a number of peer-reviewed papers in this field. Dr. Namira earned his undergraduate degree in biology at the University of Chicago and his PhD from Michigan State University. For the last 22 years, Brendan has worked with the USDA helping to make American food, feed, fiber, and fuel better, cheaper, more accessible, and more sustainable. Brendan, welcome to Side Dish. Thanks very much, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm delighted to have you because we've got some wonderfully exciting things to talk about today. So can I ask you to start us off by telling us a little bit about your background, how you came to be a researcher in the agricultural sciences area? Well, sure. I, I guess first I should start with a confession. So I am not a food scientist uh, by background. I actually started life as a physics major at the University of Chicago. But while I was there, I took a few bio classes and, you know, really just dis- I got so interested, I decided to change my major. So I, I finished the degree in biology and then went on to study uh, soil microbial ecology and plant pathology at Michigan State. So that's where I did my PhD. Uh, again, I, so I was working on crop plants, so very much upstream of, of, uh, of foods, looking at how bacteria and fungi interact with foods in the field, growing the uh, you know potatoes actually was the crop plant that I worked on, and then got a postdoc looking at how potatoes are stored and how they interact, and then got a job with here with the USDA at our Eastern Regional Research Center just outside of Philadelphia, looking at how human pathogenic bacteria interact on different kinds of foods. So a little bit of a circuitous path, but here I am very happy today as a food scientist. Well, there you go. Physics's losses is our gain. So I'm <laughs> delighted to have you. So most food scientists we're extremely familiar with at least some of the non-thermal food processing technologies, you know, things like uh, high pressure processing. However, I don't think there's many of us that have got the same depth of knowledge on the full range of, and state of development of, of all the technologies that get lumped into that non-thermal bucket. So can you give us an overview of, of specifically what cold plasma is, how it works, what its key advantages it has over other more traditional methods of food preservation? Can you help us with that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So most of us are probably familiar with, uh, when we think about the states of matter, we're probably familiar with the three states of matter, solids, liquids, and gases. Okay. Um, so the fourth state of matter, plasma, is, un- is a little bit less familiar. So if you start with a solid, all the atoms and molecules are kind of locked together and they're very quiet and they kind of stick together very closely. If you add energy to that solid, then all those atoms and molecules start to slide around. They get a little bit more mobility and they move away from each other. They become a liquid. Well, if you keep adding energy to it and you break the connections between those, you get free floating individual atoms and molecules. And now you have a gas. 
Well, if you keep adding energy to it, you break the bonds that actually hold those atoms and molecules together. Now you have free floating electrons, you have ions, you have radical species, and that's a plasma, right? So, you know, plasma is a little bit, you know, it's, as a fourth state of matter, it might be a little bit unfamiliar, but you can think of it as a kind of an energized gas. So we call it a non-thermal process. All of these non-thermal processes, what that means is that their mode of action for killing bacteria or viruses or fungi operates by some means other than heat. And that's really all that the term non-thermal means. All right. So why are we so excited about cold plasma, which is sometimes called non-thermal plasma or non-equilibrium plasma, depending on who you're talking to or, or you know, what the, what the intent of the, the study is. So we're excited about this because you've got this whole slew of mixed ions and electrons and oxygen singlets and, and you know, acid protons and things like that. And all of this is created just with air and electricity. Mm. So there's no concentrated acids, organic acids or other acids you put in there. It's a chlorine-free process. It can be done completely waterless. So there's applications for dry or low, um, low moisture foods. Uh, and all of these, these reactive chemical species are really broad spectrum. So you have efficacy against E. coli and against norovirus and against cryptosporidium and against you know, aspergillus and against all, a whole bunch of different range of uh, pathogens that we might be concerned of, right? And then at the end of the day, the plasma itself is, can be what we call self-quenching. So you take the gas and typically we use air because in food it's it's cheap right i mean this is the you know one of the things that you really need to be concerned about when you're talking about mass uh you know volume production um so you add you use high voltage electricity to, to split apart the oxygen and nitrogen atoms if you don't do anything with that if they just fly along and they don't interact with your bacteria or your virus or your fungi they will recombine and they will come back together to make the original oxygen or nitrogen so there's no residues Right. So it's a waterless process that doesn't use any chlorine. So you don't have any chloramines that are produced and there's no residues. So there's nothing to wash off uh, at the end. So there's a lot of reasons why this is a very attractive technology. So, so the the ionized material is created, as I understand, through using high voltage. How when you applying high voltage to a gas like that, I would imagine that would generate at least some level of heat. So, you know, there's hot plasma would, would, would arise. How does this become cold plasma? How, how, do, how do we manage to sure. adjust this approach so that we can make it cold? Sure, sure, yeah. So, I mean, when people think of plasmas, I mean, one very familiar form of plasma is, uh, is flames, right? So a, a candle flame or a welding torch or something like that. Those are examples of where you're you're adding energy to convert the candle wax or whatever it is into a flame. Okay, that's a tight, hot, dense plasma. Are you all of the reactive species are, are contained right within that candle flame? And it's obviously very hot and would do a lot of damage to things if you're trying to have a non-thermal. It's great for like you know flame cooking a burger, right? But that's not <laughs> so good if you're trying to achieve a non-thermal treatment of lettuce. What we do in different kinds of technologies is we create this height, this this tight hot, dense electric spark. And then either by using magnetic fields or by using gas jets or by using other kinds of techniques, take that tight, hot, dense plasma and stretch it out, increase its volume so that as it expands, its temperature drops. And you go from having that tight, hot, dense plasma to having a loose, cool, diffuse plasma that you can then apply to 
tomatoes and blueberries and oysters and lettuce and other kinds of things without causing sensor damage. You still have all the free electrons and oxygen singlets and other kinds of reactive species, but now you've pulled the temperature down to the point where you don't have sensor damage. Right. So, so again, using electricity to do this, how does this process then compare with other processes that are available in terms of energy consumption and environmental impact? Sure. Well, some of the experimental systems that we have, um, you know, there, there are a lot of people doing research in this field. And, and I should say that there are a lot of different ways to make plasma. And so the different kinds of equipment that you use, they're each going to have their energy consumption profiles. But, you know, one example of systems that I use in my laboratory, you can have a very large plasma plume uh, that's, uh, you know, suitable for all the technology uh, exploration that we've done in our lab. And it operates at about 540 watts. All right. So in comparison, a toaster at home uses about 3000 watts. Mm. So that's, you know, kind of one way to think about it. Another way to think about this is for other energy consumption that you might see in conventional food processing. So a one horsepower motor uses about 745 watts. Right. So a, the, a 10 horsepower motor that might be driving the conveyor belts that are moving food around, that's going to be using 7.5 kilowatts. So a scalable cold plasma system would operate, you know, might use about that same kind of uh, level of uh, energy consumption. And in fact, I, I've got an example of one company. I know they've built a rig for use out in the field to apply plasma activated water directly to lettuce up a growing field. And that uses about seven and a half kilowatts. So the energy consumption we're talking about is not, you know, it's not enormous um, because all of the energy is put right into the electrodes to, and it all goes into the, uh, the gas that you're ionizing. Again, it's typically air for food treatments. Uh, and so it all goes into make that plasma. Right. So that was really interesting. You, you talked about how there is a rig that's already in use that's not directly using the cold plasma because it's using the plasma on water and then the water is used on the, on the, on the food. Correct. What other applications can we see today where cold plasma is currently in use? Are there any uh, food applications where cold plasma is directly applied to the food today, or is it all the only ones we know of today are the ones that are secondary, like the one you mentioned? Well, right now, plasma is still a, a subject of research. Um, before you can use it in a food that you're going to sell to the public, there has to be a regulatory framework in place. Mm -hmm. Uh, by uh, FDA and by EPA and by other controlling regulatory authorities in the U.S. and by the appropriate governing regulatory authorities in Europe and China and uh, you know South America, whatever. So the you can have a lot of testing that's being done and it's moving towards full-scale pilot tests out of the lab and now into field and into full processing. And so people are trying to look at this to answer some of those you know uh, big questions about. You know, how well is it going to work? How well can we operate it? What are the costs per unit? Things like that. Right. So so I, at this stage, then the answer is it's not absolutely in direct contact, but that it, it's showing some incredible opportunity. And, and I understand that some of the work that your lab at, at the USDA has shown that it, cold, cold plasma is particularly good at destroying biofilms. Can I ask you to tell us what's happening there and, and why is cold plasma so effective uh, with biofilms? Right. So biofilms, of course, I mean, are a conglomeration of different kinds of bacteria. Oftentimes when we're thinking about bacteria, we might envision them as being individual cells, free floating, swimming around what we call planktonic bacteria. In fact, most bacteria out in the real world live in these tight knit communities called biofilms. And the reason biofilms are such a pain in the neck 
in the food industry is that they're hard to remove. The cells exist within this kind of overarching matrix of polymers uh, and, and uh, extra cellular material that holds them together and it makes them hard to scrub off. It, it makes you, you have to increase the amount of uh, sanitizers you applied to them uh, to get them off, right? And so they can be resident in drains, it can be resident on conveyor belts, on, uh, on knives and on equipment, and also on the foods themselves. So some work that we did in our lab, we were looking at biofilms for E. coli and for salmonella. And we were looking uh, to address the question, well, how much can you remove if you have a very short treatment? Mm. Understanding that you know, oftentimes treatment times that are available to you in a food processing environment are pretty short. Okay, You don't necessarily have the ability to treat something for 60 minutes or 90 minutes. You might only have a few seconds as things are zipping down a conveyor line. Mm -hmm. So we asked the question, well, if you have the plasma that's applied to the conveyor belt itself, to the material, uh, how much of this salmonella biofilm could you remove in, say, five seconds as it's going under the belt? 10 seconds, maybe a 15 second treatment. And what we saw is that these very, you know, we, so we grew salmonella on a test surface, then we treated it with the plasma. And the salmonella biofilms that were on these very um, uh, adherent surfaces, really mature biofilms, we got you know better than 99.9% reduction with a 15 second treatment. Mm -hmm. Wow. So as the material is moving under, the plasma just absolutely takes that biofilm apart and really gets rid of it. Now, some subsequent studies that we did looking at this to say, well, is this just a matter of, you know, you're, uh, does it raise the temperature or does it, you know, just blast it off because the air is shooting on? No, 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 no. That's not what's going on. We did the chemical analysis. We did the thermal imaging analysis. And we showed that, yeah, this is operating below a temperature regime where you'd expect to see any effect on the bacteria. It's not purely a mechanical thing. This is a chemical process resulting from all of those free electrons and oxygen radicals and ions that are created in the plasma to, uh, to remove that. Another thing that we saw looking at uh, some stuff, we, we really went deep on this, Bruce. We, we got some confocal laser microscopy so that we could actually look inside the biofilm. We could see, well, which ones are alive, which ones are dead? What's the structure of the biofilm? How is this being responded? And what we saw was that the plasma itself is taking apart that extracellular matrix that's holding the biofilm together. So it's blasting it apart. And what's exciting about that is that that may mean that treatment with the plasma will reduce it to one level, but it also may be opening that biofilm up to make it more susceptible to other conventional processes. So this is a case where you have the plasma working hand in hand with a more conventional sanitizer to make them work far, far better than either one could work alone. Right. So if I understood the process that you described, this ionized gas would comprise of lots of free electrons, cations, anions, free radicals. And I'd imagine that if, if the cold plasma was used for say, a high oil product, there might be some significant risk of, of lipid oxidation and subsequent, therefore, acceleration of rancidity. So, so what sort of foods is cold plasma not suited for in your experience? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really true. Uh, so when you tear apart the oxygen atom um, and you create these oxygen, your know, free oxides, uh, yeah, it's a, you get rapid oxidation. Okay, So foods that are very high lipid, let's say uh, like a hot dog, Okay, where you've got lipid, uh, you know, globules, fat globules on the surface, you get direct interaction with that. That may not be so amenable to treatment. Uh, products where the contamination that you're trying to reach is deep down inside the product. Let's say you're trying to, you're concerned with E. coli that's in um, ground hamburger. Okay, so the, the chub of hamburger that has the E. coli inside, the plasma is not going to be able to get down inside that. 
if you're concerned with salmonella uh, on the surface of a skinless chicken breast, sure, the plasma can be applied to the surface. But if it's on the underside of skin, then the plasma won't be able to reach it. So, you know, it's like any other kind of technology. It's got a lot of advantages. Uh, there's a lot of technologies, um, you know, that they might be suitable for one kind of commodity uh, and not so suitable for the other. The trick with cold plasma is to look at it and decide, you know, what is the, the area where this is really going to be most effective so that you can get those reductions of pathogens that you want without necessarily causing any sensory changes that you don't want. Right. So, so some of the light-based uh, non-thermal processes problematic because of shadowing. You, you you don't get full exposure of the item that you want to treat to to the light, and therefore you don't get full treatment. Is cold plasma like that, or is, or, or can it actually work its way around to the the if you like the shadowed areas of the item being treated? Yeah, it is much more of a wraparound. Um, it's surface treatment because, again, think if you think about this as an ionized gas, um, then it will flow around the, the curved surfaces. It'll go down inside cracks and crevices. It'll go inside pores. We've done some studies looking at uh, eliminating pathogens on oranges where they were on the skin or they were down in the stem scar or they were at the blossom end. Yeah, and it'll get down inside those crevices. Right. right? So uh, light-based treatments like uh, monochromatic light or uh, UV or uh, high intensity uh, white light, a uh, broad spectrum white light. Yeah, I mean, it's a direct line of sight kind of treatment. Plasma is not quite like that. I mean, it will wrap around, you will get you know more of an open treatment. Having said that, the side that's facing the plasma emitter where the plasma is really flowing, that's gonna get more of a more of a uh, of an exposure, more of a treatment than something else. Right. You know, then the, the, so the dark side of the moon. So. <laughs> yes. So, so, you know, if you imagine you've got, uh, you know, this thing, like if it's a spray bottle of Windex or something, you're trying to spray it. Hey, the one side's going to get wet and the other side won't. So that means that when you're deploying cold plasma, there needs to be some kind of a process of moving or rotating your product uh, from an engineering um, process control standpoint. Or you could have multiple heads, multiple emitters of the plasma uh, that would allow you to reach all the surfaces that you need to treat. Something like lettuce, where you want to make sure to get all the surfaces. If that's going forward on a flat conveyor belt and the plasma emitters are above it, I'm waving my fingers in a diagram here, Bruce. You can't, I'm sure you can't <laughs> see it. But if the plasma is spraying down on top of it, then you're treating the top, right? Yeah. So how do you get uniform coverage? Well, it's possible that you could have this just drop down off that conveyor belt down inside a tower, the plasma blowing up through that. So you have full tumbling, you have full uh, control like that. Right. That would be the sort of thing that you might see if you were treating around objects like blueberries, uh, or semi-round objects like almonds, uh, or small objects like spices or peppercorns, things like that, right? So you have tumbling, you have full treatment. Right. So I've also read that uh, there has been some researchers that have been using uh, cold plasma to treat, say, fresh produce that was already packaged in a uh, flexible bag of some kind. Mm -hmm. How does that work? How does the cold plasma get into the bag and how does that process actually work? Yeah, th th this is a really fascinating area of study. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's more technically challenging. And I speak from experience because we've done some of this work at our lab too. So the big thing about packaging, right, is that once the product is in the package, you can't do very much more to it. You can do modified atmosphere. There are people that are working on having uh, antimicrobial uh, or biosuppressant gases that are released, like chlorine dioxide or ozone or things that are released inside the package. Active packaging is another area of active research. But basically, once it's inside the package, you can't really do very much more to it. 
Well, what you can do with this product is after it's inside the package, if you put it between some very carefully designed electrodes and you adjust the power and you adjust the voltage and the, the pulse frequency with a, with a deft hand, you can actually generate plasmas inside that package, wow. right? So after the, after the product is already as clean as you can make it and you put it inside the package and it's sealed off from any further uh, opportunity for contamination, either from the materials, your the contact stuff, the workers, whatever, you can give it another shot of another antimicrobial process. And the exciting thing about this is as this technology is developing, you could do that when it comes off the packaging line, you could do it when it goes on the truck, you could do it again and it comes off the truck and you could do it again at point of sale. So this is a repeated process that you can do wow. while through the packaging, while the packaging is still maintaining integrity, you can give this continued zip, zip, zap to maintain that biosuppressant uh, process. So you can extend shelf life, you can make it as safe as possible, and you can have uh, other kinds of things you weren't able to do with other sorts of um, uh, antimicrobial processes. It's a very exciting area of research. Right. So, so what's happening inside the pack? Is it generating uh, ozone, or is there something else going on there? It's generating once you when you create the plasma inside the package, the whole spectrum of all of what you would expect to see in plasma is being created. The oxygen, the nitrogen is being torn apart. Actually, water vapor inside the package is also being broken apart. That can be very exciting because you have H two O that's broken apart into H and O. And then that can then recombine to make H2O2. Right. So you can actually be generating some peroxides in there, which are also biosuppressant. You get these kind of sanitizers. Uh, oxygen comes off that. Uh, we, we're cracking off the regular oxygen. O2 is made into o, just naked oxygens. Those can then recombine to make O3. So you've got some peroxides. You've got some ozone. Uh, you can have uh, a nitric and uh, nitrous oxides that are produced in this recombination. So you've got a whole complex mixture of antimicrobial chemical species in the plasma. And you know, one of the really cool things is, depending on the technology that you're using and how you tweak the dials and how you set the voltage and how you set the pulse parameters and, and all that, you can actually change the chemical composition of that plasma. So one kind of plasma, which might lean more heavily on the ozone side, might be more suitable for treating, uh, you know, say almonds in a pack. You might want to back off that and have something else with a different kind of mix that might lean more heavily into peroxides if you want to be treating something like strawberries in a pack. Right. So the equipment is is adjustable. The chemical composition of the plasma is adjustable. It, I mean, I mean, this is an exciting idea. It, it's it's pretty yeah. tricky. It's tricky to do, and that's why you're not necessarily seeing these out in the marketplace right now. But there are researchers, you know, all across the United States, um, in Europe, uh, you know. Asia, all around the world that are working on this, because that's, that's a very exciting, very flexible kind of technology that could potentially be applicable in a wide range of food applications. So, so in these kinds of applications, what sort of exposure time are we talking about? Well, it depends on the plasma machine. Uh, you can have very aggressive plasma treatments like plasma jets. And as I said, you can have treatments as short as 5, 10, 15 seconds. Uh, larger, milder, more gentler forms like a dielectric barrier discharge system or a corona discharge system, that might be a minute, two minutes, three minutes. If you're putting something in a package and uh, you could envision that, you know, they're sitting on the truck and, and as it's going from, you know, one warehouse to another one, you could have a continuous flow of this. So they would be, you know, treated for hours at a very low level. So you maintain this or it might go on for a bit, off for a bit, on for a bit, off for a bit. Right. So there's a lot of 
customization that you can do with the plasma. Ultimately, this stuff has got to be operating in a context that's going to make sense for that particular commodity. So if you, you want to treat something as it's going down a conveyor belt and you only have 10 seconds, well, okay, then you would see you know, how would you adjust the equipment so that you can deliver as much uh, bang for the buck as you can within those 10 seconds. Mm. Another commodity might be a little bit more flexible. You might have a little bit more time. So you can adjust the technology to say, well, can we take advantage of that? Mm. Mm. So I recall reading that researchers have observed that foods treated with cold plasma have, have been observed to have a lower pH after treatment. So I would imagine that the underlying mechanism here is uh, it's a reaction of the uh, uh, the various uh, reactive species that have been generated by the cold plasma. But that leads me to the question about what's what role is that lower pH playing? Is that contributing to the uh, killing of microorganisms or is the cold plasma itself? And, and then that probably leads me on to thinking about, well, how does cold plasma play in a hurdle approach of food preservation? Yeah. So, so having acid result, you know, a pH drop is seen very frequently in plasma, especially if you're working with plasma activated water or plasma activated mist. When you're talking about plasma, you, you put air across the high voltage electrodes and you tear it apart and you make plasma. Okay, so that's what it does. Mm -hmm. If, on the other hand, you spray some water droplets along with that air, then all of those reactive species get kind of trapped inside those water droplets. And now you've got a mist where those reactive species are in the form of this, you know, sort of reactive mist. The water itself can get torn apart. The H2O can get torn apart and, and make the peroxides, as I said. But so when you Create the plasma activated mist. Now you've got this spray droplet, which is essentially sanitizing the mist. So that's if you put the, the water into the plasma. If, on the other hand, you take the plasma emitter itself and submerge it in a tank and shoot that plasma into water, now you're capturing all of the reactive species that are coming out of that plasma field into this, into this water, right? Uh, and so now you have plasma activated water. So you have a lot of ions, a lot of electrons, a lot of things that are floating around. One of the things that you capture is as you split apart the H2O, when the H comes off, that is a plain proton. That is a naked proton that, that, is, right. that is pure acid from a chemical standpoint that you can't get a stronger acid than that. So when you shoot the plasma into water, you can see a pH drop from, you know, 7 or 7.2, whatever your water is, down to 6, 5, 4, 3, all the way down to like, you know, 2.5 even, depending on how wow. long you run this. So a chemist would call this a weak acid because you don't have full um, dissociation of the ions. You've got a lot of uh, protons floating around. Uh, so it's, it's a weak acid solution, but the pH is quite low. What that means is that you can have this acid cleaning effect. So that's one antimicrobial. When the acid interacts with some of the, you know, if you have other antimicrobial compounds that you're using as a treatment, you can have that kind of a combination effect. The uh, acid pH can get onto cell membranes and you have a little bit of membrane permeability effect, which then might make other processes more effective, whether they're physical processes like UV uh, or, or pulse electric field or chemical processes like uh, sanitizers. Okay, so the, the opportunity for the plasma to interact with uh, other kinds of interventions is very exciting. and It does definitely contribute to that hurdle approach to make them work better. Mm. Uh, you know, we had one study where we did uh, where we applied uh, nicin to apples to see, you know, what kind of kill level we could get with listeria and uh, listeria monocytogenes. And in that study, the nicin, you know, we put it on and, and we were able to get a three and a half log reduction of the listeria 
if you leave it on for 60 minutes, you get this reduction, you know, so three and a half months, pretty good. Well, if you mm. pre-treat that listeria with plasma for just, I think it was about 30 seconds, a, a quick 30 second treatment with plasma, and then you applied the nicin, you got the same three and a half log reduction of the listeria, but now instead of taking 60 minutes, it only took three minutes. So, wow. so it really, really made the nice and work a lot better and a lot faster. So it really, really opens up the door to a lot of the combination treatments. And I should say there are a lot of people that are working on this. I'm certainly not the only one looking to combine plasma with other kinds of processes. But that, that's one of the things that makes this area of research just so exciting because there's so many potential ways to use plasma by itself with water uh, or in combination with other uh, more conventional sanitizing processes. So we've talked a lot about uh, the use of the coplasma in, in as a microbiological control, but it, if you read a little further, you, you you see some literature that starts to indicate that it has maybe it has the capacity to degrade toxins such as mycotoxins and maybe even break down pesticide residues. And I've even read something about um, enhanced seed germination and yield. So mm-hmm. it it. It, it, it's starting to sound a lot, a lot like a magic wand at this point. So can you help us classify that? Because I, I, I really have a problem with you know, technologies that seem to be uh, the right solution for everything. So help, help me understand that. Well, Bruce, you and I are of the same mind. I also have a problem with, the, with calling something a magic wand. Nothing is ever uh, suitable for all problems at all times. Right. The thing about plasma is that it is a complex mixture of reactive species that will come out of your plasma system, which means that it is very uh, broad-minded in who it will interact with. Yes. Okay. Uh, so depending on how dense the plasma is, and that might be a function of what kind of voltage you're using, how, how high you've turned up the power, your pulse frequency, and so on. Yeah, when you put this on, you can break down aflatoxin. There's studies that have shown that. Um, you can have uh, inactivation of fungal contamination on, of, sores, of, uh, of spores and things. You can have breakdown of microplastics because all of these things, mm-hmm. the oxygen singlets, free electrons, they will interact with the polymers in the plastics and they'll break them apart. Okay? That's actually one of the kind of an adaptation from um, how plasma is used in non-food industries. And plasma is used all over the place. I mean, there's a lot of other areas where plasma is used. And one way is in polymers. To take two polymers that won't stick together very well just because of their surface charge, what you could do is you could apply the plasma to the polymers and it breaks apart those long chains of polymers into short chain oligomers. And then there's a lot of free electrons that are floating off those short chain oligomers. So you can have two incompatible polymers. You treat both sides. And then the short chain oligomers that are sticking off those cracked polymers will then interact with each other in a way that the parent polymers wouldn't. And so you can have, and they, they do this to make, you know, cell phone cases to make plastics stick together. Whereas otherwise you might need a couple of intervening layers of plastics or different layers of glue or, or heat. Now you treat them both with plasma and bang, they stick together like gangbusters. One of the things that plasma does is it changes the surface charge and surface wettability of different surfaces. So if you apply it to paper, it makes ink stick better. So you need less ink to get the kind of ink density that you want. Mm. Uh, It will make dye stick better to fabrics because it changes the surface charge of the fabric fibers uh, and allows the dye molecules to adhere more tightly. Uh, It will remove organic matter from inorganic matter. And this is why they use it for cleaning electronics. 
for satellites and for other kinds of applications. Now, when you're talking about food, I mean, I'm a, I'm a food safety guy, so I'm always thinking about the food, but I can certainly see that in the food environment, if you're talking about um, uh, cross-contamination issues or transfer issues from packaging onto foods, you may be wanting to look at plasma and say, well, can we you know, print our packaging using less ink? Can we print it more quickly for drying? Can we do cross-linking of polymers so that the plastic packaging becomes stronger and has more functionality in a way that we would not otherwise be able to achieve? Now, that's the point where you'd have to start talking to a chemist. I'm a microbiologist. So, right. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I know some chemists that you, people could talk to if they want. Uh, but this is, you know, one of the things that's most exciting about plasma. Is I, I always think about it from a food safety standpoint, but there are a lot of potential applications in plasma in different areas of the food industry. So as we've talked about lots of different applications of cold plasma, we reached the conclusion of where do we likely to see this be commercially applied and what barriers are in front of us still, apart from the regulatory barrier, which we've already talked about. But what other things will need to happen from a research point of view? And, and given all of that, what do you think, in your view, is going to be the first foods that we are likely to see on the market that have been treated with cold plasma? Well, plasma is at that very, very interesting stage of technology development. And it's at that point where people are, have heard more about it, they're aware of it. And now we're going from asking, does this work, to will this work for me and my commodity and my product? Right. So there are a few questions that have to be asked for that. Well, first of all, um, you know, if there's a lot of data that might be out there on other kinds of commodities or solving other kinds of contamination issues, anybody that wants to use this is going to have to say, right, what kind of a cold plasma equipment is available for me to test on my commodity and in my product space? So to do that, they're going to have to ask, you know, is it solving the problems that I want? Or alternatively, is it allowing me to create some new product that'll let me pursue an opportunity that I wasn't otherwise able to pursue? So they're going to want to ask, well, how well, how does it work? How well does it work? Does it work consistently? How much is it going to cost? How much is it going to cost to buy the equipment? How much is it going to cost to operate the equipment? Am I going to have to hire three PhDs and five technicians to run this machine? Or can I have this as part of my regular line stuff? A lot of that all is kind of folding into large scale cost engineering of using equipment. As the technology matures, it's going to become better and faster and cheaper and easier to use. And so you're going to have to start to see people apply this to other kinds of uh, technologies or other kinds of uh, commodities. They're going to have to make sure that it works at a speed that is uh, suitable for their particular commodity, whether that's you know shrimp or blueberries or apples or, or uh, steaks or whatever. Okay. Then asking the question, how well was this going to integrate into my processing line? If it's a small piece of equipment that's going to fit into a footprint readily, that makes it much easier to roll out than if it's a much larger piece of equipment that's going to require a lot of space, a lot of additional engineering controls for power, cooling, or, or other uh, things like that. So when you're looking at how this is going to roll out and, you know, what's the first commodity that's going to, that's going to get this, um, you know, I'm going to think about high pressure. All right. So when everybody asks, well, let's, let's think about high pressure. What was the first big commodity for high pressure processing? Everybody knows what it was. It's guacamole, because mm -hmm. that happened to be one that it was perfectly suitable for that. And as, as soon as high pressure process guacamole came to market, boom, that was it. That was a home run. And all of the rest of the high pressure work that came out of that, it was, man, you know, if only we could make this work as well as it works on guacamole. 
So what's the first thing that is going to be applied to plasma? A couple of different candidates. I don't know exactly which one uh, it's going to be, but you could look at small, fragile fruits and vegetables, things like leafy greens, um, things like small fruits like raspberries. These are commodities for which a lot of the physical processes aren't appropriate because they're too fragile and because the sensory characteristics are too delicate. All right. So you need something that's going to be uh, a little bit more gentle, a little bit um, uh, more respectful of the product, let's say, but it's still going to give you the antimicrobial uh, or antiviral or antifungal processes that you want. Another interesting area could be grains, grain processing. There's a lot of you know information that suggests that processing the grains will allow you to have reduced losses in storage. Uh, seeds and nuts is another area. They're kind of small, they're hard to treat, has to be waterless because you don't want to introduce a lot of water into your process. And so your other, uh, you know, kind of, you know, spectrum of technologies that might be available to you can be kind of limited. Another area, interestingly, could be baked goods. Remember I talked about how it allows for surface treatment of, mm. of paper and fabric and it changes the surface wettability and it changes the surface uh, energy characteristics of that. There is some research to show that baked goods coming out of the oven, if you treat the tops of those uh, buns or breads, then you can have reduced losses uh, in storage and you can have other kinds of coatings, whether it's you know, poppy seeds or, or um, yeah, seasonings, would stick better to that, right? Um, so there's a few different opportunities, a few different, uh, different options. Uh, other products, I know there's been treated effectively on seafoods, things like salmon steaks and shrimp uh, going into storage, you know, very effective reductions of things. If you if you have currently have a problem of contamination and there's really not a good solution out there, then when you try cold plasma, you might see, hey, you can get some serious reductions in the contamination issue that you're concerned with. Then it's just a question of saying, right, we know it works now. Is it going to be profitable to use? Can we may do it fast enough and well enough that we could then go to the regulatory bodies and say, hey, we want to use this? And would you please allow us to do this in product that we're going to sell to the, to the public? Well, that's amazing. And, and as we finish up here today, um, it makes me wonder whether there are people out there that have been inspired by this. So certainly I'm inspired by it. And what is it that you would want a food science that's inspired by what we've talked about today, who wants to get in, involved in this field? And, and how might they be able to get involved in helping to bring technologies like this to commercial use? I would say that the people, you know, if there are researchers out there who are, are thinking about cold plasma and talking about it, it's a lot easier to find collaborators in cold plasma now than it was years ago, because there are so many more of us. Back in the day, you know, there were five or six of us and we all knew each other. None of us had any money. Yeah. Um, well, now you've got people that are seeing the promise of this and lots of different areas, different universities uh, and different companies across the country. People are starting to look at this and starting to see some promise and starting to broaden the scope of potential commodities that might be applying to it and see wait, how well can we make this work. So there's a lot of there's a lot of new research opportunities. On the other hand, if you are in industry and you want to ask the question, hey, I'm hearing a lot about cold plasma. Could this work for me again? There's a lot of people out there that are working on it and you can connect with people. There are whole meetings that are devoted to this. IFT certainly has uh, a number of presentations that has for years uh, presentations, some that I've given and that others have given, posters and talks and symposia all about cold plasma and how it works and you know the different kinds of applications that you could pursue it. So if you're considering doing this, reach out to somebody. 
if this podcast has taught you nothing, Bruce, it's taught you that cold plasma, people like to talk about cold plasma. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we're more than happy to talk about the advantages, disadvantages, potential applications, and to work with you to do some test runs and say, hey, is this something that, you know, we could roll out and, you know, maybe change the future of food processing? Thank you for all your time and your insights today, Brendan. I've really enjoyed learning from you and hearing about all the amazing science you've been involved in. Well, thank you so much, Bruce. It was a pleasure. Thank you also to our listeners. If you're enjoying Side Dish, please let us know by leaving a review wherever you source your podcasts or by connecting with IFT. You can find us on Twitter using the handle at IFT and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on Facebook and LinkedIn. For more on this subject, be sure to visit our website at ift.org and type in the subject that you're interested in into the search box to gain access to a ton of resources. Thank you for listening to Side Dish. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Have a great day, everyone.